What's up, guys? Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. And my guest today is Stephen Van Meter of Stephen Van Meter Financial. It was a pleasure catching up with Stephen. Today, we talked about the Chinese housing market, the European energy market, and the US economy and how those things are on a crash course for disaster. Now, here is Stephen Van Meter. Enjoy. All right, what's up, guys? Jay Martin here, and I'm joined once again by Stephen Van Meter. Stephen, it's really good to see you again. Jay, it's great to be back. Well, thanks for making the time. So I've got a few different directions that I want to go today, but why don't we start with a piece of content that you put out yesterday. The title stated, the U.S. economy is on the brink of collapse. And so I want to dive in to the details a little bit. Can you elaborate on that headline for us to begin? Yeah, so you look at the world, it's pretty obvious. You see there's problems in China. The, the real estate sector is kind of almost reminiscent of going into the great financial crisis. It's obviously a different setup there. You have borrowers not making payments on their loans, which was you know not unlike what happened here in the US. But on the flip side is they're making payments on homes that aren't built yet uh, because the developers are out of money. So you, know, you, you see things in China are not good. They've got their economy shut down. They're dealing with a chronic dollar shortage. They're in big trouble. And you say, well, maybe I'll look outside of the uh, Asia. And you, you kind of move over to Europe and you're like, well, th there's nothing worth looking at there. I mean, massive energy crisis uh, in Europe, obviously, of the war and the invasion of Ukraine going on. How they even get out of this without, I mean, if they got a, just a recession, that would be the best case. I'm not sure how Europe ends out of this without ending up in a depression. And so people then turn to the U.S. and say, wow, things over there must be great. And the idea is, you think about it, if Asia goes under if Europe goes under, we're not an island. We're a globally synchronized economy. Things in the U.S. just don't hold up. And, and people don't realize that. They're looking to the U.S., particularly the equity market now as a safety haven. And it's just, just not how the system works. Now, okay, I want to pull on that first thread. You mentioned the Chinese housing market specifically, which, as I understand, that's the largest market in the world. It's about $43 trillion in value. Is that roughly correct? You know, I don't I don't know the hard numbers. I do know it's huge, though. I mean, okay. and in, effectively, it's run like a Ponzi scheme. You know, a lot of people and I, I think this is worth understanding because typically when and we were talking about buying the homes before we started the show is, you know, you typically you, you maybe put a down payment if you're building a new home, but a very small one. You don't actually finance the purchase until it's done. Well, in China, it's completely different. You actually buy the whole thing before it's even finished being built. Interesting. Yeah, I've been watching that. It's it it's remarkably similar to a Ponzi scheme, the way the future units are sold before they're yeah, before there's even plans to construct often. Okay, so what what would the impact be? Because I hear conflicting opinions, I suppose, on you know, could China's could a collapsing Chinese real estate market actually impact, you know, the broad landscape globally? You think it could? And and if so, how? Well, absolutely it can. I mean, again, we come back to the notion that everyone's an island, but we're a global economy. You know, we people don't know is is that mutual fund you're invested in? Did they buy some of that debt from those property developers? Is there a financial firm somewhere in the middle that lent them money that perhaps you're, you bank with or you do business with, whether directly or indirectly? And what, what did we learn during the great financial crisis is, you know, people couldn't even figure out who owned the loans. 
And yeah. so the idea that we can somehow today be like, you know what, we're, we're completely immune from anything that goes on in China, it's ridiculous. If their financial system breaks down because their housing market collapse, it's going to send shockwaves around the world because people are gonna start questioning, hey, what about Canada? Isn't their real estate overvalued? Well, gee, maybe they're gonna have a problem. Boy, Europe's in a, in a dire situation. What if their banks fail? It just will take and zap confidence, including here in the US. That makes sense to me. And I always found it very weird when somebody would say, look, if the Chinese housing market collapsed, it wouldn't actually impact many countries outside of their borders. I think it's 43 trillion, but I do believe as an asset class, Chinese real estate, it is the largest asset class in the world. And so if the largest asset class in the world crashed, you'd have to assume there's going to be trickle down effects. And to your point, like often we don't even know who holds the debt. So it's hard to determine where that spread would go first and how heavily, how heavily. Right. And I mean, you think back to the great financial crisis, nobody knew what a credit default swap was and nobody knew banks were even selling them. No one had ever heard of that, but it was a massive business. And when, when did we finally hear about it? Oh, when the banks that were you know, effectively selling those credit default swaps realized that, hey, that, that gravy train of profits that we never thought those policies would cash in on, oh, we're going to have to cash on them and we're going to fail. And that's the, the whole notion here is we don't know, you know, the counter party risk who's lent money who's borrowed i mean we don't know anything but the idea is if if it does break i guarantee you you're going to see at least at the very least a lack of confidence in the global uh, banking system and that will turn in badly for the global economy okay and i want to pivot to europe you mentioned europe and yeah they're between a rock and a hard place absolutely definitely staring at a recession you mentioned possibly a depression could you just differentiate between those two for me the recession versus the depression outcome? Yeah, I, I look at a recession more as, as a slowdown. It, it could be prolonged. It doesn't have to be you know, the technical definition of, say, two quarters. It just could be a period where you're experiencing below trend growth. And in their case, it looks like that they could experience that for a while. Although, what do we hear from the ECB today when they hiked rates and said, hey, we're probably going to be hiking some more, uh, which <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh because it just is like there's no way they can continue that. Even they predicted we're going to see positive growth here and you know you look on social media and you see people in europe posting their electric bills their personal bills or businesses you know those who own businesses and you're like and what are you seeing people say well I, I can pay one month and then i'm closing my business you know so i look at that and say how do you not end in a depression where you have just a, a pro not just a prolonged downturn but a steep downturn in ep economic activity because you know how how can you you know manufacture goods and services if you can't keep the lights on because it's too expensive how can you even compete in this global economy and so i start to look at europe and say gosh unless something changes and changes really quickly to for them and in, in a good way i don't know how they come out of this without just an absolute implosion of their economy and it's, it's pretty tough to imagine when you say something changes in a good way, like what that could be. Um, I mean, I suppose maybe uh, like a, a, a huge pivot in terms of uh, their stance on the war in Ukraine. And they just say, look, we got to take care of our people today. And what that means is we need access to Russia's cheap energy and food. And that means we need to reposition ourselves. And we're really sorry about this, but we're going to take care of our people. And that is that a potential pivot that could lighten the blow. Stephen, what do you think? You know, I mean, that could come down to it, whether or not it can happen fast enough. 
I mean, and you think about this from a policy standpoint, you know, they started shuttering their nuclear plants across Europe, and then they they went to their effectively their biggest nearby enemy, you know, Russia, and they said, hey, let's make a deal. We're going to buy almost exclusively as much energy as we can from you, and we're pretty sure there's nothing that you'll ever, ever do to disrupt that. And yeah. and lo and behold, whether whether it's you know political, whether it's it's due to the invasion, whether it's deliberate, I, you know, I, I can't speak to that. What I can say is what energy is the lifeblood of a modern economy you don't have it or you don't have enough of it and yeah. you're in big trouble and europe needs energy and they need cheap energy the world needs cheap energy so the fact that you know these energy rates are skyrocketing i mean i think if i was in their position could i keep my business open i mean sure you can raise your prices but people can't afford it so the reality is you're going to start to see a lot of business there's fail and then the winter is coming if they don't get this resolved by winter i mean it gets even worse to the point is there even going to be a European Union left when this is over with? And, and you, know, you don't want to talk like that because you say, wow, that's pretty dire. But think of it, you know, if the energy bills here in the US or Jay, where you're at in Canada, I mean, went up anywhere close to the magnitude they're experiencing, we would be discussing right now is how could we even do this interview because we're not sure we can keep our computers running for the rest of the day. And this is a reality that people need to face because if Europe goes under, it will take the rest of the world with it. Yeah, you're, you're right. And you, you pointed to, you know, a handful of small businesses that are already po posting their utility bills online, seen a ton of that come out of the UK. And it's it's the mom and pa owner operated cafes that I've seen so far, those with super thin margins, the most vulnerable, you know, segment of the business community, and typically the least likely to be saved by government intervention. But Liz Trust, I think this morning, announced her um, utility cap plan, right? So personal utility bills will be capped for two years, corporates, six months, and it's going to cost initially at least 120 to 150 billion. I was pretty, I, mean, I shouldn't say I was surprised. You know, she touted herself as a fairly libertarian candidate, which I'm sure libertarians would laugh at. But, you know, what's, is this going to make a dent, Stephen? Do you have an opinion on it, first of all, if you don't know Sweat? But do you think it's going to make a dent? And if so, do you think you'll see similar actions come out of other countries within the EU? Well, my my question is, you can cap energy all you want, but what if you don't have the energy to it bills? I mean, what if they just don't have the supply? So I could say, Sorry. hey, guess what? You're you, whatever you're paying today, you can pay that for the next two years. You're like, but Steve, I turned the, I turned the stove on and there's no gas. I'm like, there's nothing there. Oh, don't worry though, but your bill's not going up. You're like, dude, I can't even boil water. And yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. you know part of the issue here is the notion that you can have this economy that's going to run, but they just don't have the energy. They, they, I mean, whether it was a brilliant move by Russia to get them addicted on this and convince them to, you know, shut down all their stuff because they would have this control. I don't know. I mean, we, we could game this out all day. The bottom line is it doesn't matter what your bill is. Don't have energy. You don't have anything. Sure. Sure. Okay. You know what? Now I was talking to uh, Ronnie uh, Stoffeli yesterday and he's in Austria, you know, he's in Vienna. And he said the government's actually coming out now and recommending people begin taking cold showers as a recommendation, right? You need to take one for the team and, and neglect the hot water uh, nozzle in your shower. All right. Talk to me about how this, you know, you expect this to begin impacting the economy in the, U in the United States, right? Like where do you begin to see impacts and, and what do you expect over the next year? 
Yeah, what I expect to see here in the U.S. is the unemployment rate, you know, continue to tick higher. So how, how does all this kind of, you know, come back to the U.S. as we look to the dollar? And, and that was kind of, you know, where the show, my YouTube show yesterday was more about was, look, the dollar is really rising in strength here because there's a global dollar shortage. And since there's more dollars outside the U.S. than inside the U.S., you know, dollars need to flow out of the U.S. into the rest of the world. And that's what really the dollar does. So when the dollar gets strong, I, as an American, think, OK, uh, I could go buy an American car. But man, that, you know, German made car that I've always wanted is super cheap now because of the relative strength of the dollar, although perhaps not because German manufacturers are going to have to raise their prices due to their energy bills. But nevertheless, that's the idea. And you start to see dollars flow out. The, the challenge now for the U.S. economy is how do domestic producers compete? Because that's the whole idea is you start getting this influx of cheaper foreign produced goods and services and domestic producers who have been forced to you know raise wages and prices due to inflation. They can't compete. And that's the idea is they can't. And so in turn, what they have to do is start to lay off. And we started to see you know, the beginning of that a little, you know, a couple months ago, layoffs were increasing. We heard some big businesses talk about how they were going to cut back on their non-productive employees. And, and now we're kind of in a lull. You know, we look at the last several weeks of unemployment claims. We see them decreasing, which, you know, at face value, you say, wow, that, that, that's good news. What we're not seeing is ongoing claims come down. They're kind of still ticking higher, suggesting that people who have lost their jobs aren't really able to find one really quickly. And that's really weird because according to the government, there's, you know, 10 or 11 million, whatever, the, whatever the made up number they're using is of jobs available. So it doesn't make a lot of sense if there's all these job openings and why are these people sitting on unemployment? And it kind of tells us the economy is not as strong as we see. And so, you know, as those people who are on unemployment have less income, they spend less, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So unless something really changes here in the U.S., and it doesn't seem likely, uh, what we should see is a continuing increase in, of course, the four-week average of initial claims, but I expect initial claims to tick higher. And that's pretty consistent of what you see during a tightening cycle by the Fed. And thinking further down the road, you know, we're watching, uh, you know, I guess like a reshoring movement uh, right now. And, and this is kind of like the deglobalization of our economy. And is that in conflict with the U.S. economy becoming less competitive because of its strong dollar? Because you think if we're reshoring our industries, yet the economy is becoming less competitive. I, I'm curious how those two things battle each other. What, what do you think? Yeah. So so why why we're even hearing about reshoring because of supply chain issues. If, if we didn't have the pandemic, we wouldn't even be hearing about that right now. So I think a lot of businesses are saying, look, um, we that was our issue is we need to bring that back on short. Now the question will be is, is there an even enough demand? So if we spend the money to bring that factory back over here, what if there's no business? What, what if there is nothing here? And perhaps now we're back competing with a reopen, maybe China reopens at some point. And because of the strength of the dollar and the weakness that you want, they start, they're back undercutting US producers. It's a dangerous game. I mean, the global economy, particularly with a dollar as a reserve currency, if you think about how the system's supposed to work, dollars have to flow from the US to the rest of the world. And that means you have to export effectively jobs. And the easiest job to export is a manufacturing base because wages in the rest of the world, relative to the US, are very low. So it makes a lot of sense. To bring that back and compete, maybe for a while, but in time, yeah, they'll lose. 
Interesting. Okay. Now I've had two, uh, two good friends. Um, I've spoken to recently in very different positions, but both of whom recently came into some money and I want to outline both of their situations. And then, you know, if they were to come to you, what kind of counsel you'd have Steven. So they're very different. Number one, uh, entrepreneur just sold his company. He's in his mid fifties. He hit his number, you know, it's, it's around 40 million. So he's good. He's set. He's, he's good. You know? So what he's looking to do obviously is preserve that principle and grow it incrementally without taking any unnecessary risk and live off the interest for the next 30, 40 years, right? However, right now he's looking everywhere and speaking with a variety of bankers and you know advisors and not seeing anywhere that he feels confident to uh, begin allocating capital. The next individual, same age group actually, uh, but is not sitting on an abundance of wealth, still you know living paycheck to paycheck, uh, just received a, a bit of inheritance to the tune of about $60,000. So significantly less cash, and they're looking to put that money to work a little bit right now. Um, right now, I mean, it, the world's on fire, Stephen. Like where, where would you point either individual? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's pretty interesting because you have actually one person who, I'm assuming your friend that sold his business that has a 40 million is probably not living like he had 40 million to begin with. I mean, he's I'm a modest presume, individual. Yeah, he's a yeah. modest individual. So, so in his case, he should probably not be in a rush and probably be thinking very long term. I mean, with his money. I mean, he shouldn't. I mean, there's no reason not to because even if he draws it down a bit, he still has so much time to catch up. Whereas your other friend that has a smaller amount, it depends on how you know what they need it to. You know, is that is there an immediate need to invest it? Is there some sort of return, some sort of target? But if you look at you know, where we're at, we're likely in the early stages of a bear market. So could you buy stocks here? Yeah, you could dollar cost averaging. If that's your thing, you could do that. Um, over the longer period, that would be okay if you're not taking, you know, big chunks at a time. But when we look at the bond market, which nobody wants to look at right now, we're sitting with an inverted yield curve, the two tens in various parts of the curve, we have the front end, the back end, and the Euro dollars futures curve are inverted telling you very clearly is we don't know when and we don't know exactly why but the bond market is telling us at some point interest rates are going to go down so the probability if you start looking at you know where do i want to go stocks or bonds and i mean or commodities if you think the world's having a recession commodities are out uh, you start looking at equities and you could say well maybe the u.s holds up as everyone believes as a safe haven probably not but you know maybe you you buy the dips as you go a little bit the bond market is telling you the opportunity is there it doesn't tell you when doesn't say it can't get worse but it just tells you over say the next few years or more the bigger opportunity would be there. So um, if I was you know, advising them uh, indirectly, I would say, hey guys, uh, take a look at the bond market and maybe don't be in a rush. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, you've got the cash. You don't have to go dump it all in at once. Maybe, you know, if you're not ready today, don't be, but start putting a plan together. And then if you're comfortable, just put it all in or, or just put it in in chunks, you know, come over the plan and stick to it. Yeah, I like that. And that's kind of what I said to both is that, you know, first of all, I forgot to ask, I can make some introductions, but step one is don't rush into anything right now, right? Take your time. And actually sitting in US dollars is probably a great place to park it for the short term until you find, you know, ex until you develop that strategy that you really fall in love with. Interesting. Okay. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the commodities market, the equities market. So Sentiment on the commodities market right now, Stephen, moving forward over the next sort of like one to five years, where does your sentiment indicator lie? 
Well, if we look at the economy, if you if you agree that the economy is slowing down, the global economy is is interlinked pretty tightly, and you say that you know coming out of the COVID pandemic, what was notable to me, Jay, is in the past, not the, the global economy wasn't fully in sync. You know, you'd hope that, you know, some parts of the world were and some parts weren't. And, and you can maybe direct some of your investments if, if one part of the world like Japan was slow, the rest of the world wasn't. So you look now what happened, the pandemic just leveled the playing field. And so effectively, even though we all kind of came out of it slightly different stages in the big scheme of the global economy, we came out together. So now we're all in the same boat. So if you think the global economy is recessing, and then even though energy is in short supply, obviously we can look around the world, say, hey, there's sanctions against Russian oil, uh, and gas, and perhaps there's a, a lack of supply and all those factors that perhaps over the longer term, energy will be a very interesting play. Uh, it's very cyclical to the economy. So if the global economy slows down, demand goes down, then, you know, commodities such as energy are going to drop. And that's what's notable, you know, come back to that, you know, four-week moving average of initial claims. As those claims go up over time, you see demand for energy fall because it's simple. If I'm not working, I'm not driving, you know, I'm not obviously commuting to work. I'm not at a job that's consuming energy. I'm at home perhaps minimizing my energy usage because I have a minimal amount of money compared to what I used to. So, I would say overall, in, in the shorter term, heading into a global recession, I'm bearish on at least the energy sector. Longer term, I'd be pretty bullish because the supply dynamics are not getting any better. And when we do eventually come out of this slump, uh, you know, there will be a strong demand for energy. The global economy will need it to grow. And I think that is a strong bullish case for that. Um, gold, silver, things like those commodities, not too bullish on. They tend to go down, particularly during dollar shortages. Uh, why is that? It's simple. Uh, I need dollars to pay my mortgage because I'm out of work. Well, I could cash out my 401k, but I got to pay or the withdrawal penalties and taxes, or I can go sell those couple of those gold coins that I've gotten a safe. Simple. Go sell the coins. You can get them uh, sold pretty quick. There's always a demand. So I look at those and you see those tend to go down. Uh, but in, again, not only during dollar shortages, but the dollar is rallying and not quite an inverse play between the two, but you, you can see some of that element. So um, I'd say on the commodity sector, I'm overall bearish in the shorter term, bullish perhaps in the longer term for sure. Okay. Anything you could point to that would cause the dollar rally to start rolling over or when and if so, when would you expect that to occur? Uh, the one thing that would stand out for me to to change the pace of the dollar will would be China, and it would involve China devaluing the yuan, which I think is a strong play to happen. Now, obviously, I couldn't say when because they're acting right now as if that's not on the table. Uh, China's looking uh, initially; they're, they're putting stimulus out there, trying to hold up their real estate market because it and its banking system are so interlinked now. Uh, do you know once you kind of understand that? Hey, you're buying properties that aren't. Built you know, and financing that, it doesn't look too good. It starts to say, wait a minute, there's 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 no real asset here to, to back this loan uh, because who wants to live in an unfinished property? So you, you see that the whole you know real estate banking system all running on a Ponzi effort. If the stimulus doesn't work, which I don't think it will because of course they keep locking down their economy and the global economy is cooling off as we can see in the data. Uh, they're they're in, they're already trying to put you know baby stops into the free fall they want. At some point, they're forced to devalue because they see money flowing out, and that's what happens when your currency is 
weakening say compared to the dollar which it's tied to what do people want to do that are in china hey i want to get my money out of here because my value my money is dropping all the time i'll go buy dollars that makes it worse for china what are they going to want to do devalue the yuan that'll bring the dollar back down that'll bring interest rates way back down we've seen that happen in the past so that that's my case to bring the dollar down anything else at this point i i don't see any case i, I still think it goes higher until something breaks interesting okay look steven thank you for making the time today coming back on i want to point people uh to your platforms it's at meter steven on twitter check out steven meter financial on youtube uh where else should we point people today Oh, yeah. So good. Thanks for mentioning that, Jay. So Jeff Snyder, Tracy Shuchart, and I are in the process of launching a subscription platform right now. It's currently free. It's at marketinsiders.com. You can go sign up, put your email address, get your report uh, starting uh, tomorrow. So it doesn't come out on weekends. And uh, hopefully here in a few weeks, we'll be live. But we've got a fantastic amount of research coming at a super low price. So we're really excited about uh, working together. And uh, I hope all of your audience will check it out. Yeah, that's a solid team. You said marketinsiders.com? Market Insiders Pro. Market Insiders Pro. Okay, you got it. Awesome. Look, thanks again for your time, Stephen. I appreciate you, man. Jay, thanks for having me on. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor follow or subscribe to this podcast drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend all of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc thanks for tuning in